God chose a rainy Saturday afternoon in August of 1991 at the Richland Memorial Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina to introduce me to one of the three best friends that I have on this planet. At one minute after two o'clock p.m., Anna strained more, strained one more time, and at two minutes after two, Parker Strainmore made his exit from the birth canal into the hands of Dr. Holliday. For the first 30 years and five months of my life, I thought that I loved children, but I was wrong. Because the feelings of love which I experienced at 2.02 p.m. on Saturday, August 24, 1991, and the feelings which have carried on from that day to this, in comparison with the feelings which I felt for children prior to that, really cannot be compared. I love my two sons, Parker Moore and Charles Moore, more than I can ever put into words. So, Pastor, you love your sons. What do you want for them? More than anything else in the world, I want my sons to be saved and to live godly lives. Like the parents in Perea, I want the Lord Jesus Christ to touch them. I want Him to put His hands on their lives. I want Him to bless them. I want Him to touch their wicked hearts. I want Him to break their stubborn wills. I want Him to guide their impressionable minds. I want Him to protect their fragile emotions. I want Him to shield their precious bodies. I want Him to regenerate their eternal souls. I want the Lord Jesus Christ to have full control over my sons. I want Him to hold them and touch them and bless them and never, never for an instant let them go. In Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, we find some mothers and fathers from Perea, that is east of the Jordan River, who had similar aspirations for their little ones. In Matthew, the text is Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. In Mark, it's chapter 10, verse 13 and following. And in Luke, it's chapter 18, verse 15. And in none of the, the accounts is there anything to suggest <clears throat> that the children were physically sick. The motive which the parents had in mind in bringing the children to Jesus was strictly spiritually based. Nothing in the text indicates that the children were asking their parents to come or that they themselves were desirous to see Jesus. They were little babies, Luke says. Some of them were even little babies, Luke says. This act was done strictly by the parents on behalf of the children. Also, there's nothing in the text, watch out now, which indicates that the children were brought for baptism. Now, before we go any further in the sermon this morning, I'd like to say uh, something about infant baptism. This morning, I would like to give you, and if you, I guess if you're taking notes, you'll want to take a pen and write this down because it's a, it's a controversial subject. This morning, what I would like to give you is an exhaustive list of everything that the Scriptures has to say about infant baptism. So get your pen, paper ready, and I will give you from Scripture every example, every command, every inference in the Bible concerning infant baptism. All right, did you get that? 
The Bible doesn't say anything about infant baptism. It's silence. There is nothing. The word baptize means to dip or to immerse in water. The only examples of people who in Scripture are baptized are those who are professing believers. The purpose of the parents in bringing the children to Christ was not to have them baptized, but it was to receive a blessing upon their children. Now let me explain what this blessing was in the Jewish mind. The Jews had always valued the blessing of a father or a prophet or a great rabbi or some other venerable person. Listen as I give you a quote from the Talmud. It says, after the father of the child had laid his hands on the child, child's head, he led him to the elders one by one and they also blessed him and prayed that he might grow up famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. So to touch a child and to lay your hands on a child is a symbol of invoking a blessing upon them. And it seemed to establish a personal relationship between the revered man or the rabbi and the little child who was being blessed. Remember in Genesis 48:14, Jacob at the end of his life blessed, as it says here, then Israel or Jacob stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head guiding his hands knowingly for Manasseh was the firstborn. Jacob blessing the two sons of Joseph there at the end of his life by laying his hands on these little children. Next, I want to show you also that the, that the text says, and you'll see there in Matthew 19, the text says that Jesus prayed for these little children. Look with me there at what it says in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. Now, what is this prayer? I have an aunt who is 80 years old, and anytime I ever have a problem in my life, uh, whether it's serious or small, health-related or ministry-related or relational or anything, I immediately pick up the phone and dial 1-814-371-5076, and I say, Aunt Florney, you got to go to prayer. I've got a problem with this. And immediately, without hesitation, she enters into an effectual, fervent prayer that avails much. Uh, she is the greatest prayer warrior that I have ever known. But yet there is someone who is a better prayer warrior than my Aunt Florence. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself because the Scripture teaches that even right now, while He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, He is praying for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Also, we have many examples in the Bible of Christ praying during His earthly ministry. So let's put it all together and see what we have here. And it is a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture it is. Jesus is teaching and healing somewhere in Perea, that is, that is east of the Jordan River, on His way to Jerusalem. While He's teaching and healing people there, the Pharisees come along and they question Him concerning divorce. He instructs them along with the multitude and the disciples concerning divorce. Later, Jesus and His disciples go into a house. And while they are there, Jesus clarifies the issue of divorce. And after clarifying the issue of divorce with them, Jesus teaches them about celibacy or singleness or the gift of singleness. And sometime, it appears, during that conversation, parents begin to 
knocked at the door. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks out and there's a stroller there with a couple of little babies in it. And it's mom and dad. And in their arms, they are bringing with them the natural outcome of a biblical marriage. And that is a little boy or a little girl. Or maybe several little boys or several little girls, Brian and Roberta. Uh, they bring them to Jesus and they request a blessing and a prayer from our Lord which He selflessly grants them. And then another family shows up at the door and they bring their children to Jesus and then another family and another family. And that brings us in our notes to Roman numeral 1, the disciples' rebuke. It says there in verse 13, then little children were brought to Him that He might put His hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. They didn't rebuke the children. They rebuked the parents who were bringing the children. Finally, after all of these families had come, the inconvenience and the noise and the smell and the crying had become too much for the disciples to endure. So the disciples rebuked them. It says in Luke 18.15 in a parallel passage in a more descriptive way that when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. In other words, as the people were coming and for everyone who came, they got a rebuke from the disciples. Again, not the children, but the parents. Look here, people. It's been a long day. We've got more questions for our Lord about divorce. Uh, it's going to take a long time to clarify some of these things that He said about the subject of divorce. Jesus is just being polite. He's a very busy man. He's a very tired man. So will you please respect our privacy and will you please leave and will you please tell that line of people out there that there will be no more blessings tonight. Hey, 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 come on, let's move it, let's move it. VBS was last week. We've got some important ministry items to discuss. Please get these kids out of here. Jesus, will you tell them to move on? <clears throat> Roman numeral 2. The Savior's love. Verse 14. And verse 15, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, what I'm going to do for you this morning on Roman numeral two is I'm going to get very theological at first and then at the close of the sermon, I'm going to get very practical. Theological. <clears throat> the phrase, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Look at it in your Bibles. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. What does that phrase mean? Does this verse teach? And, and, and if you're going to just listen to part of this, you're, you're going to miss and you're going to misquote me. So please listen to everything I'm going to say about this particular subject which is going to undoubtedly make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to deal with the issue here. Does this verse teach that infants or small children are guaranteed a spot in heaven if they die before they reach the age of accountability? Well, let me start off by saying that there is as many, there are exactly as many verses in the Bible which talk about infant baptism as there are about the age of accountability. The age of accountability is not taught in the Scripture. I was taught growing up, not maliciously, 
But I was taught growing up that the age of accountability, of course, was the age of... I was taught 12. I knew that when I was 11 years old that I was an unbeliever, but I was confident in my sin that if I had died prior to my 12th birthday, that I would have gone straight to heaven. I was hoping that I would die before I reached the age of 12, honestly. And I hope that I honestly, when I would watch, and that was back in the early 70s when, uh, uh, you remember Dave Burns, all those uh, Billy Graham movies, The Thief in the Night, they didn't scare me. I was 11 years old. I wasn't to the age of accountability yet. So I was fine for me. I would go straight to heaven if I were to die at that time. Well, again, we have to go by uh, what the Scripture says, and the problem is the Scripture does not teach an age of accountability. In fact, the Bible clearly says that the wages of sin is death and that the reason a person, any person, goes to hell is because they have unforgiven sin because God is holy and He must pay for or punish all sin. And that we become sinners long before the age of 12. Let's look at when we become sinners. Psalm chapter 58. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, Psalm 58 and verse 3. You're using the Pew Bible. That's on page 496. It says on, in Psalm 58, 3, that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. A little baby will be lying in a crib. There will be, is it laying or lying? Thought so. Uh, in a crib, nothing will be wrong. The child will begin to cry, making you think that there's something wrong to lie. I didn't have to teach. My two sons, whom I love very much, how to lie. They knew it. It was in their heart from birth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go forth as soon as they're born speaking lies. But you know what? We become sinners prior to our birth. Look back just a few pages in Psalm 51 and verse 5. Here the Bible says, through King David and his Prayer of repentance to the Lord, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So at the point of conception, we became sinners. So is that when we became sinners? No, we became sinners long prior to our conception. At least the conception of anyone in this room. Look with me please in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to see when in actuality we became sinners. Romans 5 and verse 12. And in your pew Bible, that's on page 977. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin Adam sinned. We all became sinners. You didn't become a sinner at birth. You didn't become a sinner at conception. You didn't come become a sinner when you reached the age of accountability or when you knew the difference between right and wrong. 
You became a sinner when Adam sinned back in the Garden of Eden because we were in Adam at that time. Just as tithes were paid to Melchizedek from Levi, and Levi wasn't even born yet, through Abraham because Levi was in Abraham in the same way we were all in Adam and back in the Garden of Eden, we became guilty, serving sinners. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair that I have to pay for and I have to inherit something which someone else did. Well, first of all, you don't tell God what's fair and what isn't. And secondly, if you have a problem with Adam being your federal head and giving you sin and giving mankind sin, if you have a problem with one man standing in your place and being a sinful representative, then to be consistent you're going to have to say, wait a minute, it's not fair that that one man would hang on the cross and pay for my sins. Be consistent now. One man sinned, you died. Another man died on the cross, paid for your sin. You either have to accept them both or not at all. The Bible says Adam sinned and when he did, we sinned. The point I'm trying to make with all of this is that every baby... And please don't stop listening till I'm finished with this. Don't turn me off after the next sentence. But the point is that every baby who's ever conceived at the point of conception is a hell-deserving sinner. It's what the Bible calls original sin. So, pastor, what you're telling me then is that every baby who died is in hell. No, I'm not saying that there are any babies in hell at all. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm trying to say is, is that that baby is a hell-deserving sinner because of the sin of Adam, just like you and I are hell-deserving sinners because of the sin of Adam. You don't become a sinner when you commit your first volitional act of rebellion. You commit your volitional acts of rebellion because you are already a sinner. And God is holy and He will punish all sin, every last one, whether it is the imputed sin of an aborted baby or whether it is the conscious, willful, first-degree murder of a seasoned sinner. So, Pastor, what are you saying? What does the Bible say about the eternal destiny of the unborn, of infants, of the mentally retarded, of those not capable of faith and repentance? What does the Bible say? And the answer is nothing. That is nothing in terms of a direct definitive statement. And some will say, oh, well, yes, it does. Because, because that's not true. Because David's baby who died, remember David committed adultery with Bathsheba and the baby died and the Lord said that baby's going to die. And David prayed. And David fasted and he didn't shave. And then the baby died. And when David, when the baby died, David went in and he shaved his face and he put on a clean, he took a bath and he put on a clean set of clothes. And his servant said to him, David, I don't understand. While the baby was, was alive, you were moping around, but now that the baby's dead, you seem to be back to normal. And David's words in 2 Samuel 13, 23 are, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And many have taken this to mean that all infants will go to heaven. But as you study this, and I encourage you to do so, as you study this, you'll find out that the Hebrew phrase, I shall go to him, is just a phrase for going to the grave, just for going to death. As you read Second Chronicles, you'll read where king after king dies, 
godly and ungodly, and it will say they went to be with their fathers or they rested with their fathers and they were buried. But let's say that 2 Samuel 13.23 does teach that this particular baby went to heaven, David's baby. Even if that's the case, it's not a blanket statement for every child who was ever conceived. So, Pastor, what you're saying is that babies are in hell and that all babies are in hell. No, I'm not saying that. Oh, so what you're saying is that all babies are in heaven. No, I'm not saying that either. What I'm saying is really two things up front. First of all, every baby deserves to be in hell. And secondly, if babies are in heaven, they are in heaven because Christ died for them and because the Holy Spirit regenerated them prior to their death, even as John the Baptist in the womb was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So nobody is in heaven just because they're a baby. They're in heaven because Christ died for them. But everyone is deserving of hell. So what are you saying, Pastor, about this? I'm saying that the Scripture is silent on the eternal resting place of infants. I'm saying that I don't know. I'm saying exactly what the Scripture is saying, and that is nothing. It's silent, so I will be silent and not make a prediction on this. Would you like to believe, Pastor, that every baby is in heaven? I certainly would. But I can't give you a chapter and verse which spells that out. And I know that the Scripture teaches that the judge of all the earth will do right. Yes, he will. He will. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that all elect infants who die will be in heaven. I don't see any Scripture for that. That's, that's nice, but, but I don't see any Scripture for that either. Well, are all infants elect? Maybe they are. I'd love to believe that they are, but I can't say that definitively. So you say, man, that's hard. That's cold. I, I just don't, I just don't believe based upon the love and the compassion of God that an infant would, would ever be in hell. Well, if you're going to base it on the compassion of God, that, that's good. But if you're going to base it on the full character of God, you'll have to remember that during the flood, he sent a flood that covered the whole earth and he murdered millions of babies. I shouldn't use the word murder. God killed millions of babies in the flood. God destroyed perhaps thousands of babies when he rained fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He gave specific instructions to the children of Israel that when you go into the conquest into a city, I want you to kill every animal, I want you to kill every man, I want you to kill every woman, and I want you to kill every child. So you can't base it on that. I'll say silent on the subject because Scripture is silent on the subject, but yet, experientially, most of you know that eight weeks ago, my pregnant wife woke me early on a Saturday morning, told me that she was bleeding. Most of you know that within 24 hours, the miscarriage was confirmed. While we were at the hospital, Anna passed 
something that was about the size of a grape or maybe two grapes. They took it in a, a little container filled with some kind of fluid, maybe water, and dropped it in there and they set it on the table in the emergency room where we were. It's what the doctors called fetal tissue. And I'm not a biologist, not a doctor. But what it was, it was the unformed body or the material which would make up the unformed body of my third child. And that child has an eternal soul which is in eternity somewhere right now. I don't have a verse to back what I'm about to tell you. But I choose to believe that God in heaven has saved that little child and that I'll see him again someday. You say, Pastor, you don't have chapter and verse to prove that. You're right. I don't. But I think I'm going to see that little one again and God has given me a peace in my heart. Whatever the case may be, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, blessed be the Lord God Almighty, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So the phrase, of such is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 19.14 simply means that all who have humbled themselves like little children will be saved. How do you know that? Well, if you look in the Luke passage, and let's turn over to that because it, it, it'll, it'll prove the point. Luke chapter 18. I'm sorry, let me get the correct text. I, I've written down the wrong text. Luke 18.15 Then they also brought infants to Him that He might touch them. But when His disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's everything Matthew had. But now look what Luke adds to that in verse 17. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's talking about receiving the kingdom in humility, in a humble way. It's what the verse is talking about. Matthew 19.13 doesn't say, or Matthew 19.14 doesn't say that of such means all such, but of such is the kingdom of heaven, meaning that it's referring to little children and also to believers who are childlike in their ways. Well, we've been theological, now let's get practical. Let's get practical and let's examine the phrase back in Matthew 19. Let's examine the phrase, let the little children come to me and the phrase and do not forbid them in Matthew 19.14. I'm going to show you this morning very quickly seven ways in which you might be guilty this morning of forbidding little children to come to Jesus. And let me also with each point not only point out ways in which you might be forbidding little children to come to Jesus, let me say that this text also says that you are to permit 
or to encourage or to suffer, as the King James Version says, little children to come to Jesus. And so I'm going to give you both sides of the coin because Jesus doesn't just say, let the little children come. And he doesn't just say, do not forbid them. He says both. Do not forbid them and let them come. I'll give you both on six counts. Let's see how you would judge yourself on these things. First of all, you can forbid a child from coming to Jesus by telling him or her that they cannot be saved because they are too young. Listen, Gary Scott, who's about to become the pastor of New Hyde Park Baptist Church, was saved when he was four years old. And the people who are the most guilty of telling little children that they cannot be saved or know it's impossible that God has done a work of grace in your life, the people who are the most guilty of this are Calvinists. And I can say that because I'm a Calvinist and I've heard it for years. Let me speak to the little children for a second this morning. I don't care how young you are. If you realize that you're a sinner and that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, you can be saved if you will believe in Him, if you will trust Him, if you will turn away from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. If you can understand what I've just said, you can be saved. And don't let any adult tell you, oh, you're too young. You can't come to Jesus. You can't be saved. Listen, John the Baptist was saved while he was yet in his mother's womb. You can be saved today, boys and girls. And don't say, well, I'll wait until I'm 11 or 12, or I'll wait till I'm a teenager, or I'll wait till I'm an adult. I want to say to the little boys and girls this morning that are in the congregation, you can be saved this very day by putting your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin to Him. Jesus will save you. And if you're the oldest person in this room this morning who is without Christ, He can save you as well. But we forbid children to come to Christ by telling them that they can't be saved. When your son or your daughter comes to you, parents, and says, I would like to be saved, do not forbid them. Believe them. Encourage them. Sit down with them on their level and thoroughly explain the Gospel to them and encourage them to repent and to believe. Warn them of the horrors of hell and tell them of the glories of heaven and explain to them the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Explain to them, parents, that they can be saved. Number two, a way in which you can forbid little ones from coming to Christ is by failing to bring them into public worship or making public worship a priority. All right, strap it on because I'm coming after you right here. Failure to bring children to church consistently is a forsaking of ourselves, forsaking of the assembly of ourselves together. Hebrews 10.25 This church does not have a perfect children's ministry, but it does have a children's ministry where there are opportunities for your children to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Vacation Bible school, Sunday school. There's a nursery school for the, for the, uh, the three and four year olds. Pioneer clubs or what we'll have now this, this fall on Friday nights. Mom and dads, you ought to have your kids consistently under the Word of God in the house of God. Maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but as a child, I wasn't given the choice concerning this matter. 
The Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I was a fool. Maybe I didn't want to come, but I didn't have my parents come alongside me. Now, Eddie, would you like to go to Sunday school this morning? By not bringing them. I'm not saying send them. I'm saying bring them. By not bringing them consistently, you're teaching them priorities and you're saying that the church of God is not important or at least not as important as other things. Jesus says, let them come to me in their impressionable years. Every Sunday, Sunday school, Pioneer Club, the ones that you miss will never be recaptured. And how many adults would there be in this room this morning? I won't ask you to raise your hand who would say, oh, that I had a mother and a father who, when I was just a pup, would have taken me to a Bible-believing church and would have taught me the precious truths of Jesus. What agony I would have missed if I would have known of Christ from the time I was very little. Number three, and closely related, when you are asked, ladies and gentlemen, to work with the children of this church, I want you to pray about it, And if God gives you a peace, I want you to say yes. Whether it's Sunday school or VBS or Pioneer Club or helping Alec with the youth. By saying no to children's ministry because of convenience sake is saying no to the future of this church and it's forbidding them to come to Christ. Jesus says, let the little ones come to me. And you can do that by accepting a task or accepting a job that you've been assigned to and doing it with all your heart. Dave Burns is here this morning. He's the only, I love Dave because he's the only guy in the church that's wackier than me. Dave Burns, when he does children's ministry, he does it with all his heart, with everything that he has in him. He perceives children's ministry to be the most important thing in all the world. For him to take a job dealing with someone else would be a step down in his mind. Teachers, don't look at your lesson 10 minutes before you're supposed to walk in and teach it. Put as much time into teaching the children as you would into teaching adults. Come on time. Be prepared. Offer the children a ride. Care for the children. Be creative. Be enthusiastic. Be energetic. Pour your life into the ministry of the children of this church. Call your children that are in your class. Visit them. God rest her soul. Angie Bucheri, I heard, was one of the best Sunday school teachers this church ever had. Do you know she made personal visits to all of her children that were in her Sunday school class? No, they're just children. They don't need all that attention. If I can just get their parents there, I'll get them there. No, you need to come down and you need to deal with the children on their level and you need to do it with all your heart. Number four, back to the parents. How can you forbid the children? By failing to teach them at home. You see, all of your parents make a very good effort at seeing that your parents, your children wear the right clothes because it would be embarrassing for them to walk around in rags. And you're sure that they're involved in their athletic activities because you need them to develop and that would be a shame if they'd miss out in their athletics. And you want to see that they get good grades because you want them to go somewhere in life. These things are priorities. And you see that they have social graces and that they say please and that they say thank you. You make these things a priority because you don't want your children to be rude. 
But are you embarrassed when your children know nothing of the Bible? When they don't know the great doctrines of the Bible? When they don't know the, 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 the stories of the Bible? See, I, I think it's good that you have your children in athletics and you want them to get good grades and look nice and have good table manners. But it's more important that they know the Lord Jesus Christ and that you make that a priority. You want them to fit in. You want them to be normal. You want them to succeed. That's not a bad thing. But do you want them to be godly? Is that a priority? Oh, yes, pastor, that's a priority. Well, if it is a priority, let me ask you this. Are you sitting down with your children? And are you opening the book? Or are you teaching them the Word of God? Dad, you've got to take the lead in this. My little boy Charles would much rather watch Swiss Family Robin Hood than do his catechism. But it's incumbent upon me to turn the television off and to pull him aside and to work with him and to teach him in the home. You not only do it with what you teach them verbally, but you do it with the way you live. Are you living honestly before your children with integrity and consistency? You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't poor, poor, but it was a stretch to make it every week. My dad worked. My mom stayed home. There were four kids. It was a stretch to make it. But all my years growing up, I know this for a fact, my father never missed a tithe check to the church. If it meant us doing without, I'm not talking about doing without the essentials, but if it meant us doing without the luxuries, we did without the luxuries. My dad modeled in front of me that you put that tithe check in the church and you make that a priority. When I was in the first grade and I was given my first dollar, that was the first money I was ever given, I was told a dime of this belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You put it in the offering. Whether or not you know it, mom and dad, your home life, your priorities, your family devotions have a great bearing on whether or not your children will later trust in Christ. Number five, failure to discipline or failure to spank. If you have not yet read the book Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, you need to get it and you need to read it. It's the best thing written on the subject. What Mr. Tripp says in his book is that you say something to a child once in a conversational tone. If they do not obey it after one time, they are to be spanked. Not beaten, but spanked, and then it is to be explained to them. See, what Mr. Tripp taught me, which I didn't understand before, that when I put up with disrespect or disobedience in any way from my children, what I'm teaching them is that it's okay to disrespect authority. And if it's okay to disrespect my authority, ultimately one day they're going to disrespect the authority of God and say, you know what? I don't have to listen to him. I didn't have to listen to mom and I didn't have to listen to dad. And I knew how to manipulate them. You mark it. If your child is not disciplined properly, you are forbidding them from coming to Christ because you are consistently teaching them that it's okay to rebel against God. Number six, how can you forbid a child from coming to Christ? By forcing them to say a sinner's prayer before they are ready. 
by forcing them to say a sinner's prayer before they're ready or giving them an assurance of salvation based upon a decision which they have made. Look, everybody wants to see their child saved, but sometimes we force it upon our children when it really isn't in their hearts. I talk with Parker about his salvation all the time and he knows a lot about salvation. And if I wanted to lead him in a sinner's prayer, I could lead him in a sinner's prayer right now. I could feed him all the right answers and I could have him baptized. But you know what? If I wanted to lead him in a prayer where he would say Buddha is Lord, he would do that too. He doesn't understand at this point. God hasn't opened his heart at this point and I'm praying that God will. And if I gave my little son a false sense of assurance because I could parrot him in a prayer at age four or age five, I would be hindering him from coming to Christ in reality. Why? Because he really wouldn't be saved. You're saying he can't be saved? No, I'm not saying he can't be saved. I'm saying at this point, there's no evidence of the Lord working in his heart of spiritual conviction or of understanding. And if I influence him into an unwitting profession and he's not really saved, here's how I harm him. Number one, I won't evangelize him in the future because I'll think that he's already saved. Number two, he'll have a false sense of security. And so when the evangelist gets up to speak and to preach, he'll say, I don't have to listen to this because I'm already saved. And he won't be able to explain why he's living like a hellion because he'll think that he has the Spirit of Christ in him and in reality he'd be lost. And evangelists, watch out for them. They are hungry for decisions and they'll do anything to get those decisions. Not salvations, just decisions. I knew of an evangelist one time that went in, spoke to a group of children and said, what are some nice things? And they said, ice cream and pizza and toys and six flags. Eh, and what are some bad things? Snakes and ghosts and the dark. Well, how many of you boys and girls would like to go to a place where there are nice things? They all raised their hand. Well, how many of you would like to go to a place where there are bad things? Nobody raised their hand. Well, you can go to a place where there's nice things if you just say, I believe in Jesus. The evangelist came out and said that every child in that room got saved. Listen, if your child is not living for Christ today, I don't care what kind of profession they made when they were three or four or six or ten years old, they don't know the Lord. Number seven, and finally, how can you forbid a child from coming to Christ? By failing to pray for them daily, persistently, and specifically. Before I go to bed with my little boys, I've mentioned this before, I pray with them. And I, I, I don't make this you know, vain repetition, but I have a list of things that I pray for for my two little boys. I lay my hands on them and I pray, Dear God, for Parker and Charles, would you please save them? God, please have mercy upon their souls. I pray for their wives. Dear God, I know that their wives are probably somewhere on this planet right now. Lord, would you keep those little girls pure? Lord, would you give them godly wives that will love them and care for them and protect them and be their helper and be their friend? God, please give them good wives. Lord, I want them to have a love in their hearts for people and I want people to love them. 
Lord, I want them to be great men of prayer. Lord, I want them to be close to the family. So many children I see who are estranged from their parents today and it breaks my heart. There's nothing I can do to keep them close except to pray and say, Dear God, please keep them close to the family. God, please give them a good education. God, please protect them. Lord, I pray that they never put a cigarette to their lips. God, I pray that they never take a drink. Lord, I pray that they never look at bad pictures. Lord, I pray they never say bad words. Then as a matter of personal preference, I also pray that they never get a tattoo or wear an earring. <laughs> when I'm finished praying every night, Parker says, and what about bad dreams? I say, yes, and dear Lord, I pray that Parker doesn't have bad dreams tonight. And I am trusting their souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm fearful of this world we live in. Are you praying for your children? Jesus said, forbid them not. Are you forbidding them? Then repent. Jesus says, allow them to come to Me. Are you actively encouraging your children to move in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you evangelizing them saying that they can be saved? Are you bringing them to church? Are you, when you're asked to work with children, saying yes? Are you living it out in the home? Are you disciplining your children? Are you forcing them against their will to be saved? Are you praying for them? This time I'm going to ask Glenn and Lori and Lindsay and John and Sharon and Danielle to come forward. And Anna's going to sing a song now to these babies and to these parents as a reminder of the precious jewels that we possess as a church in our young ones. What this is, is a look at North Shore Baptist Church in the years to come. It's a reminder from God that each little one is precious and unique. Let us not forbid these little ones like Danielle and like Lindsay. Let us permit them to come unto Him.